So the three views of the millennial kingdom, just a clarification, I'm sure you all know this, but the word millennial means 1,000. And to say that we're looking at the views of the millennial kingdom, we're talking about the thousand-year kingdom that is specified to be that long in the book of Revelation, following the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three views, basically, among Christians or across Christendom in terms of the kingdom. There's the premillennialism, or the premillennialist view. Premillennialism is what we, we believe, it's, it's what we teach, it's, you know, you all are very familiar with that, and you'll be pretty familiar with the chart I put up. Postmillennialism is one that you may or may not have heard of. It's not very prevalent at all uh, across Christendom today, it kind of faded out mostly. Amillennialism, on the other hand, is something that is held to by more Christians than the premillennialist view. They're across uh, various denominations. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. That's the one you'll probably run into. But there will also be three, three variations of premillennialism that we'll look at briefly too. Because you're going to run into that as well. And they don't have to do, those variations don't have to do with when the kingdom comes, but when the rapture occurs. So, uh, I think on your sheet, you only have the information about the three views. And so the extra I'm going to give you under premillennialism, uh, I just hesitated to put it on the sheet. Uh, for several reasons, but uh, we'll see it on screen. And that's where you might want the charts later on or look at the one you have. So let's move on now to talk about the three views of the kingdom, starting with premillennialism. Premillennial means before the thousand year kingdom. And when we say pre, we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. His return will be prior to the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom. In this particular view, the Kingdom is a fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the promises God made to Israel, starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And we'll certainly come back to that. Maybe not today, maybe later today, I don't know. But here is where Everything begins, if you are a premillennialist, like I know you are, uh, here's where it all begins. What did God promise to Abraham? Because Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it was Abraham that's considered to be, rightly so, the father of the nation of Israel. So what was promised to Abraham flows right down to the nation. And by the way, those promises in Genesis 12 mention his descendants. So everything promised to Abraham is now a promise given to Israel. And that, those promises made to Abraham were not conditional. Here's where a lot of this gets mixed up in terms of these different views. Because the people 
that are not premillennial do not understand that the promises were unconditional. They see Israel as being out of God's will, away from God, and as a nation they are. But there will be, during the tribulation period, untold thousands of them come back to Christ. And, that, and there are many thousands today that are Jewish by descent who have come to know Christ. The nation and the individuals are different in the church age. Somebody who is Jewish by birth can be a Christian, obviously, through faith and become a part of the church. That's their individual identity in the church. The nation is a separate entity than the church. So the kingdom will fulfill the promises of God made to Israel. The kingdom will be a literal, earthly kingdom over which Christ will reign. Now this goes back to the Davidic covenant, that which was promised to David that he would have a descendant that would sit upon the throne of Israel for eternity. So <laughs> that, that wasn't something spiritual, it wasn't something somewhere else, it's something, something right here on earth, right there in Jerusalem. And that's what the kingdom is going to begin. And of course it will stretch into eternity. And three, Christ will return before instituting the kingdom. Now we all, I think, pretty well agree and understand that. So let's quickly go to the chart and uh, actually we're going to go to the, the three views of the tribulation and each one of them will have a chart, but you'll recognize the chart. Now, those who are premillennial can be one of three things. The first is they can be pre-tribulational. And that's what we are. We are premillennial Pre-tribulational. The, the way of saying it among scholars is pre-mill, pre-trib. So you've heard that terminology, and you may or may not. It's not important, but uh, understand that mostly premillennialists are pre-tribulational, but not all. That means we believe the rapture of the church will precede the tribulation. And the tribulation will precede the coming of Christ. And the coming of Christ, obviously being premillennial means, will precede the kingdom. So here's the chart. There's a timeline here. So I got the Old Testament times noted. The cross of Christ, and we include in that, you know, his post-resurrection appearances and resurrection and all that. And then in Acts uh, 2, the beginning of the church. And we label this period here between the ascension of Christ and the beginning of the church and the rapture of the church represented by the up air because we'll be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. He won't come all the way down, but he, we will meet him in the air and return to the place he's prepared for us. That's John chapter 14, 1 to 6. We refer to this as the church age. Sometimes you hear it called the age of the Gentiles because the church has not replaced Israel, but the church has become the program of God in this time period. God hasn't forgotten about his promises to Israel. And I don't like using the word, but basically <coughs> postponed. And I don't, that doesn't mean it, it surprised God and he had to postpone it. It's just <laughs> our way of looking at it. God's dealing with Israel as a nation ended here with the cross 
and the law ended, and he'll take back up with the nation of Israel as a nation and work through them again to evangelize the world. By the way, that 144,000 evangelists, the book of Revelation, Jewish preachers will go out all over the world. They will accomplish and complete what Israel should have done back in the Old Testament. That they did not do. Instead, they ended up being ingrown, feeling like they were privileged, the Gentiles were, you know, hopeless, and, and so forth, rather than being that light to the world that God intended for them to be. But that will come about. So this will be the, the last week, the 70th week of Daniel's 70 years prophecy, or 70 weeks of years prophecy. And we covered that in, in, in the Olivet Discourse. I think you probably still have something on that in your notes. 483 years elapsed right here with the cross. That was God's dealing with Israel. As given in the prophecy of Daniel, when he was in Babylon as a captive, greatly comforting to Daniel and the Jews to know that, that they, God wasn't done with them. But there was going to come a time that that time would elapse, 483 years, and that last week, the last seven years, where God again deals specifically in and through Israel is the tribulation period. So you have the rapture then pre-trib, pre-mill, meaning the rapture, the coming of Jesus here is before the millennium. That's pre-mill. Pre-trib means the rapture part of the two-part second coming, if you want to refer to it that way, comes before the tribulation period which is described in great detail beginning in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation running through chapter 18 or so. Any questions? Anything unclear? Or if I said something that's confused anybody or just want to put in a comment. This is where we stand. Doesn't mean we all understand it all. I don't, I don't even understand all of it. Uh, uh, and I'm here trying to teach it, so that, that's okay. If we could understand everything about the future, then we would be like God. We're not yet like God. So we've got what he revealed. We do the best we can to understand it. Hey, Jay, I wonder if everybody understands the concept of dispensations and, all, and how, how it ties into this in our belief system. Well, probably not. Uh, we've probably all heard of it. Probably got a fuzzy on it. And it's really beyond the scope of my time here to talk about this morning. But briefly, let me let me just say this. He's talking about seven economies or seven ways that God dealt with human beings down through history. That you can see in scripture. Uh, there was the, the beginning of innocence in the garden, and then you had the fall and and you, I'm not going to try to go over them all, but eventually uh, you come to the age of grace, which is right here. It's it, it, the same as the, the church age. Actually, the age of grace stretches over here. And the last one, the last dispensation, is the kingdom. So there's equivalent, different terms. It's just a theological way of looking at the Bible. Uh, but Everything back this way, we don't usually talk about dispensations. 
you want to add anything to that? That's all I think. No, I just, I just, I, I didn't understand that for a long time, and I just wanted to say if other people had some of that. The conversation often comes up with dispensations as the difference in that and covenant theology. So that's a, that's a topic for future. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just stop right there and say, premillennial, the premillennial of the kingdom is attached to dispensationalism and covenant theology is attached to amillennialism. Right. Yes. Yes. And pre, the theological explanation of the whole of God's dealing with man is dispensationalism and it's, it's wrapped around how God dealt with not only Israel but mankind because Israel didn't start till you know way up past uh, the time of Abraham and it didn't really become a nation until uh, the time of Jacob in a sense so God was dealing with men before that and dispensationalism covers all that from a premillennial perspective Covenant theology is the theological framework for those who believe amillennialism. We haven't got to that, so <laughs> I don't want to say too much. Uh, any other comments? Okay. So let's move to the second perspective, idea, view of when the tribulation occurs. There are those who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. If you remember our study in the Olivet Discourse, it is very clear what will happen at the midpoint in Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation and so forth. The rapture up to that point in the Olivet Discourse is not mentioned. It's mentioned later on, chapter 25, later, later part of chapter 24 25, which demonstrates to us that the rapture is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. So those who want to fix it at the midpoint lose the imminency of it. But here's their view. They see Old Testament, cross, church age, just like we do, tribulation, second coming, millennium, just like we do, but they move the rapture from the beginning or before the tribulation over to the midpoint. What, do you see a problem with that? You can predict it. <coughs> True. You could predict it. But to me, what that tells us, okay, the word just... I don't remember where all it is, but another word talks about how we will be spared that tribulation. And this doesn't spare us that, or at least not part of it. We, we, have not, we will not experience the wrath of God. Like, like right. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 or 2 there uh, makes that very clear. So those who hold this point don't see that the same way we do. In fact, they will try to say, well, the wrath of God doesn't really start until the second half. Well, it will greatly increase in the second half, but I believe it already started. Oh, okay. I think you answered the question. So they're putting it in the middle because of that. I was wondering, why, why would they think it's, why wouldn't they think it's just somewhere during the tribulation? But I think you just that out. They attach it to that midpoint 
and they believe somehow because everything gets so bad from that point on that that's when God will spare us from the wrath and that's when the wrath basically begins. Uh, and there are all sorts of variations to this viewpoint and variations within variations we can talk about is not really going to be any help to us. Um, some who hold this view think that some who hold this view believe that Christians will go through they all believe that Christians will go through half the tribulation and they believe some of them will respond by being faithful and they'll get raptured and the rest of them didn't do so well they have to go into the second half. <laughs> kind of removes a lot of the hope and the assurance of the blessing of understanding what's going to happen. There is no biblical support for a mid-tribulation. There are no verses to support a mid-tribulation view. Is there? I, I, not that I can... I mean, they have all these theological perspectives on different verses, but I don't. There is no I don't see any biblical support for them. What I do see a lot of biblical support to is it will be imminent. We don't know the time. We don't know the moment, and we need to be ready. And being ready doesn't mean we got to be the holiest we can be and hope we're good enough or anything like that. It just means we know Jesus. Okay, that's being ready. <laughs> The third variation on premillennialism is the post-tribulation rapture. This is the one you're probably going to run into. It's more prevalent than the mid-tribulation. And it's easy to confuse this with post-millennialism. This is still premillennial, but it's post-tribulational rapture. And there's a lot of similarities, and we'll come back, after we cover post-millennialism, we'll come back to it and we'll talk about those similarities. But the post-tribulational sees everything like we do up to a point, Old Testament, cross, church age, tribulation, but what's missing? The rapture is moved, again, not to the midpoint, but all the way to the second coming. So they see the second coming as encompassing a rapture of living uh, believers, and then a return and establishment of the kingdom. And it requires that believers this side of the tribulation go through it. So again, there's no, there's no real fulfillment of John 14. I go and prepare a place for you and I'll come again and receive you unto myself, but where, you, where I am there you'll be also. Because they just take that and put it over at the end, but we understand that to be the rapture. We, we see 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, when Paul talks about the rapture as being our blessed hope, as Titus called, or as Paul called it in the book of Titus. But there's no blessed hope in that rapture part. They, they just eliminate it. Now, I'm sure the way they look at it, they see the second coming as their hope, and, and that's fine. That's part of our hope, too. But they've just basically eliminated the rapture. Although they say it's over here, it's, it's all part of this event to them. Do they believe that we shoot up and shoot right back down with Jesus? That's not a yo You know, we can laugh. It seems silly to us. Please, please understand, we're talking about people that are largely like, or largely agree with us 
premillennial return. It's just the rapture part we believe they got wrong. So they're way better off than non-millennialism, in my opinion. But. <laughs> And uh, any, any further comments on this one? Okay. Now let's move on to post-millennialism. This is the second of the three views of the kingdom. Pre-millennialism means Christ will return prior to the kingdom. Post-millennialism means Christ will return after the millennium. Now remember, we just talked about post-trib. That's the rapture after the trib. But this is this is not that. This is post-millennial. The rapture, or excuse me, the second coming of Jesus Christ after the kingdom. This was very popular for many years among Reformed churches as well as uh, as it basically didn't change anything from the Catholic perspective. This was very much the viewpoint of Christians from the time of basically Augustine, I didn't, what, he had 400 and some AD, I think, somewhere in that, that, in, uh, that uh, time frame, all the way up to the 1500s, 1100 years of Christianity. This is it. Prior to Augustine, the first 300 years of Christianity, what was that? Premillennial. Pre-tribulational. That's what people need to understand. And it can be verified by studying what the church fathers wrote about the scripture. That was their viewpoint. They understood the scripture. Just like we did for the first 300 years. With Augustine, that changed for like 1,100 years. Then, those that were it came out of Catholicism, the Reformation. They didn't change it either. So it, it just went on because the Reformers dealt with basically the issue of salvation by grace through faith versus, you know, doing all the, the sacraments and all out of the Catholic Church. They didn't really understand or study or think about their soteriology. I mean, their... Uh, Eschatology, their last things, wrong prophecy. That they just accepted it and that went on. So really, postmillennialism continued in earnest up into the 1800s, pretty much. Late 1800s, early 1900s, premillennialism came back to the fore. Anybody have, want to guess why? It was a great awakening. What's that? Wouldn't it have been a great awakening? Because the Bibles are available. No, well, the Bibles were available before that. That's one of the reasons why even you know Martin Luther nailed this. Let's hold the question. You, you, you may maybe in some of that in the Great Awakening. We're talking in general terms, though, as far as the popularity of postmillennialism. That didn't really change until a couple of things happened. But let's go ahead and look at the chart first. Actually, the the statements on your sheet and then the chart. And we'll come back to this question. Post-millennialism says the whole world will be brought into submission to Christ before he returns. You often hear the terminology, the church will bring in the kingdom. 
<coughs> Number two, they still see that, like we do, that there will be a literal kingdom on earth. But that's but they put that before Christ comes back. They think the church is going to accomplish that. And so Christ returns after the kingdom, after the millennial kingdom. Now again, he asks the question, why do you think changed that in the late 1800s, especially in the early 1900s? The world. World War I and World War II in particular pretty much put an end to that hopeful, uh, non-biblical thought process. And so the post-millennial view is very much uh, extinct almost, if not. Because anybody in their right mind can see that the world's not getting better. It's not, it's not getting even a little bit better. At the best, it's the same as it's always been, a depraved, fallen world, and that's what it's always going to be, and that at its worst, obviously, we understand it's probably getting worse and worse all the time, leading up to the, the coming of Christ, wherever we stand on that continuum. So, as, as history unfolded, it kind of did away with that post-millennial perspective. But here it is in chart form. Old Testament cross, church age. And the church, through the preaching of the gospel, reaches the whole world, and everybody pretty much, they think maybe they don't all become <coughs> saved or believers, but the church brings the world through government and what have you into submission to Christ. <coughs> There's a lot of Christians today that you'll encounter who still believe that. And they believe in being very active in politics, very active in uh, social issues, things, because they believe the church is going to bring it all to something better. And they will say to us, when I say us, those in their reply to pre-millennial, uh, pre-tribulational people like us is, you're just overly optimistic. I certainly would like to agree with that. <laughs> so I'm not going to take the overly out, but uh, we are optimistic. And that's based on promises God's given to us. Any questions about this one? Yeah. Uh, how did they get from pre-millennium to post-millennium? You said it was around Augustine time. Is that because there was a rise in the, in the church structure that they felt that they were going to take the place of Christ in terms of growing the whole the world? Or? I don't have a... Because who's going to... If, if, if that would happen, who's going to rule, if Christ is not here, who's going to be ruling the kingdom? Unless it's man. And that kind of tells me, I don't know anything about the... But doesn't that kind of fall into the Catholic idea of the Pope? And the whole that's kind of what I was saying. That's what my question I mean, the whole middle... Of the, I think from the time of the, the first Pope all the way through the Middle Ages and beyond, the Pope ruled Europe. Yeah, they were nations, but they were all Catholics, and they all yielded to the Pope. I think they believe that Christ is coming back for a church that's without spot or wrinkle, and so they view that as the church 
continually keeps getting better and better until they are at a position where God intended for them to be. Probably, yeah. <laughs> but for, <coughs> see, the Catholic Church really didn't come about to Constantine at the beginning of it, the 300s. And he, he made Christianity the legal religion to set aside all the paganism and there was actually a coming together of church and state. And the Catholic Church, you know, everything they became flowed out of that. So it's more, I think it's more historical reasons rather than good theology. Uh, misunderstandings and uh, the whole Catholic perspective that just came about about that time. Uh, we can't lay it all on Augustine, although the, uh, there are certain things about all the Middle we can. Was part of it the fact that there was no Israel? And they looked at it and said, well, there's, since there's no Israel, all these prophecies about some of these end times are going to have to apply to the church because there's no more nation of Israel. I, I think that's 100% right. That's part of it. And that's what happened is this post-millennial thing and the all-millennial thing kind of existed together. They were just different views. But they weren't premillennial. That's the way we started out the first 300 years or so. Um, I, I am not enough well-versed in history to be able to <laughs> give you all the answers and give you some general thoughts of mine. But, uh, somebody else have a word? Yeah, so just for clarity, the post-millennialism view doesn't have a rapture. I mean, not rapture, uh, tribulation. They don't believe in the tribulation? That, that's another... <laughs> I'm not exactly sure, other than I, I think they're probably like amillennialism. They take the the scriptures that describe the tribulation and they just understand it as things that happened historically. Okay, like Earth AD seventy ish. <coughs> yeah, and that, all of that already happened. Yeah. So, okay. I think the term is preterism. What I think. Yeah. They, they, they okay. say everything that, yeah. that we think is prophetic. <coughs> Move it back. Say, well, okay. these things already happened. Okay. So let's move to amillennialism. And amillennialism is a little different than postmillennialism. Now, postmillennialism just kind of died out. Amillennialism kind of became where they all went. Other than those who understood and taught premillennialism, and premillennialism, which, like I said, was basically the only view for 300 years early on, comes back around the turn of the century, 1800s to 1900s. And it's been here ever since. And there was a time, probably, between, say, 1900 and where we're at, there was a time where premillennial. Pre-tribulational view was the majority view, but it's not anymore. Amillennialism has become the majority view worldwide. Post-millennialism has dropped off. Amillennialism has kind of come in and uh, pushed back against premillennialism, and we in the church today either basically 
pre-mill or all-mill. All-mill is the, the largest group. But look, look at where that comes from. All the mainline denominations through the Reformation came out of the Catholic <coughs> Church, so they still hold on to a lot of that. Post-mill, all-mill, there's, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, so you find premillennialism, pre-mill, pre-trib in particular, usually outside of mainline denominations. Especially among those of us who believe in a liberal interpretation of Scripture. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about amillennialism. Amillennialism, the A is because of the old Greek alpha, which in the Greek language, when you put an alpha in front of something, it's like making it opposite of what it really says. So to put an alpha in front of millennial means basically no millennium. No millennium at all. No, no literal earthly millennium. No kingdom. Now they believe in a kingdom of sorts. But it's labeled amillennialism because they don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom. The prophecies concerning the kingdom, they believe, are fulfilled by the church. <coughs> this is where you hear the term replacement theology a lot. They believe the church replaced Israel. The church became the recipients of all the promises given to Israel. And so the church is the kingdom. There will be no literal kingdom on earth. When Christ returns, the eternal state will follow. But in the meantime, the kingdom is here and now, and it's in the church. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to any church. But the fact is, the church is made up of fallen creatures who don't always yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit versus their sin nature. And there's no one ruling with a rod of iron. And uh, you just had all the kingdom prophecies and promises you want. It's not here. But they like to believe in it. So their chart looks like this. When Christ ascended back to heaven, church began, the millennium began. Yeah. Although, it's been more than a thousand years. <laughs> but, remember, they got the A in front of it, so it's not the same type of millennium. They're just saying, there's no literal thousand year kingdom, but there's a kingdom. Here's where the terminology, millennialism, you just gotta have to, you know, navigate all that. But they think, I should have actually probably used the term kingdom instead of millennium here. The kingdom is the church and the church is Israel. And just, just like post-millennialism, said there's a lot of similarities. Christ comes back after this kingdom age we're living in ends and we don't, they don't really say how or when or what's going to cause that other than Christ is coming back. And then after that we go off into eternity. Now this is the majority view in Christendom, and it is rampant in seminaries that are not grounded 
in premillennial, pre-tribulational understanding of Scripture in regard to the kingdom. And it is, it really attracts people because there are so many intellectual Bible scholars, if I can use that term, that hold to this. That, that people look up to them and they are leading people by the droves in some denominations. In some denominations, it's always been there, it hadn't been a big deal. The Southern Baptist is a different story. They are just moving in droves to amillennialism, and they have the last 20, 30 years. Not all of them, but a huge percentage of them. And here's the thing about amillennialism. Let's, let's go back. I, don't, I didn't mention it here. But it comes in right here. There will be no literal kingdom on earth. Why do they say that? Because whenever they come to any <coughs> prophecy, any future promise, they do not interpret that scripture literally and normally according to the rules of grammar and the understanding of <laughs> linguistics. This is what just really puzzles me, how people that can do that are looked at to being so, so intelligent and so intellectual and everybody thinks they got it all right. What they do is, when they, when they interpret anything in the Bible other than prophecy, they interpret it like we do. Literally. The right word's really normally because even literal interpretation understands sometimes there's, there's symbolism and such. But those are just figures of speech and, and ways of communication. The amillennialists, whenever they come to prophecy, they interpret it all allegorically. But the term allegorical means it says one thing, but it really means something else. Okay, if it says one thing, then what else does it mean? <laughs> Whatever you can figure out in your brain, you think it means. There's no, there's no structure for that. I've got, I don't have so many commentaries anymore. One time I had dozens of commentaries sitting on my shelf, and I knew when I pulled one down that if it was a prophetic section, it stayed on the shelf. But I would pull them down and look at what they said about a historical passage and so forth and make, make some good stuff out of it. Um, C.H. Linsky is probably my favorite commentator. He's a German Lutheran uh, commentator. He is a huge expert in the Greek. Uh, he's just like the last word on Greek, even beyond A.T. Robertson, in my opinion. But so I, I use him exclusively often, don't even look anywhere else. But his prophecy is all out the window. So, when it comes to Revelation, I didn't even buy his book. I mean, it's, just, it's not even on my shelf. It means nothing. Because when you throw out your method of interpreting truth, which means God spoke in words. God inspired words that's in our Bible. And you understand words by the meaning of the words, the vocabulary, you, you, and especially by the grammar and the usage, there's no question what things mean when you understand that. But if you don't look at it that way, the only governing 
factor is just whatever you think it might mean. That's where all the legalism comes from. I mean, I don't know where it's that's where it came from originally. It came from Augustine, and it was probably a, largely like Lee said. There was no nation of Israel, so that's something they were puzzled over. He was, perhaps. And they, well, led him down the road to Abilene. I'm not talking about the beginning of it, but I'm talking about anybody that picks it up today, the beginning of it is throwing out the normal, literal interpretation of Scripture when you come to prophecy. I think one of the reasons why it's so popular, particularly among young people, is they like the symbolism part of it, and they want to eliminate hell. And and that can eliminate hell. So then, when you have your envelope, millennialism, I mean, I see where they're coming from, a lot of them in the sense that if there was no Israel, so the church is Israel. We take, but what about now we have Israel since 1948? How did they put that? How did they, uh, you know, I don't know, make that make sense now? It's an accident of history. Well, what oh, we, what we don't know is they didn't all switch back to become pre <laughs> Many of them have taken the chance, taken the opportunity to say that the Israel today is not a legitimate Israel, that those people are not legitimate Jews, and there are many of those people who are protesting for True. Palestine today. True. People that are Christians. Right. And that's the other thing is that if there's no Israel state, that doesn't mean there weren't any Jews. So, I mean, there's an issue there that they're just, because they're, again, in the, in the desert, you might say, you know, they don't have a, a home, doesn't mean they didn't exist at the time. Yeah. It, to me, it was, a, it was probably some form of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think <laughs> But uh, uh, that just seems really odd to me. Look at it this way. They looked at Israel as being... replaced by the church. So any Jewish people that become Christians, they're part of the church. But the nation of Israel to them, just something that happened after World War II. And that's where and anti-Semiticism and all that comes back in, is that that's their view of Israel. And they look at that, all that what happened, the Jews coming back, and, and England's uh, United Kingdom being over it and allowed for the state of Israel all that to be coming in and usurping the Palestinians' land. You know, from a human perspective, nations come and go, nations conquer nations, boundaries shift, some of it's right, some of it's wrong, it's always a big battle, it's always that perspective. But that's not God's perspective. To God, God's perspective is he created this world. He called Abraham to establish a Jewish nation to positively affect this world and reach this world. And when God said, I'm going to give you that land, it was God's to give. I didn't matter who was in that. And basically they were all nomadic at that time anyway. There's a few cities here and there, but nobody really possessed the land. Abraham didn't even possess it. He lived there. He was a nomad, but they didn't possess it until Moses and Joshua and a 
children of Israel came back and went in and possessed them. But if we understand who God is and what God said, it eliminates the whole problem in our minds. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week. I had a little bit more here, but I don't know that we even need to look at it at this point because we pretty well. Here's pre-mill post-trip. Going back, okay? You're going to find a lot of that. Amillennialism on the one hand, and the pre-meal post-tribs on the other hand, they are probably, either one of them is probably more prominent right now than pre-meal pre-trib. So someone said, well, what happened to the rapture? Well, with the real post-trib people, it's all preterism. With amillennialism, it's all preterism. They just think it happened in history. But with the post-trib people, they just think you got to go through it right before Jesus comes back. <laughs> so that's kind of an answer to your other question in the sense that pre-mill and post pre-mill post-trib and pre-post-trib pre, uh, let's start over again <laughs> pre-mill post-trib and post-mill are very similar only post-mill just think it happened historically the post-trib a lot of them think it's still in the future and it's kind of the last thing before he comes back just They're going to run into this a lot for people today. Now here's, here's the thing that I wanted to end with. And we can have some more questions, but I've already said it. God gave the land to Abraham. Bottom line. Now next week when we begin, we'll begin there and we'll look at what God said to Abraham and how it was unconditional and and how he emphasized it over and over and over and over, all the way down to David, the Palestinian covenant. And he had them drive out the Canaanites and all their other rights you know, that were there because he said their, their time, their, their iniquity was full. They were the most wicked, anti-God people would ever live, probably. And most immoral. And uh, they had just taken up residence and God said, drive them out because it belongs to you. See, that's where this whole question of Israel goes back to today. All right, anybody else? We've got five minutes or so, I guess. <clears throat> Boy, that's just, if, if you are, I think everybody here has probably been a Christian for a while, probably heard a lot of this, and you seem very. Uh, <coughs> knowledgeable. I mean, I, there might be somebody that hasn't been saved very long, or maybe you have, but you haven't been in this church very long, so it's kind of new to you. I know it's a lot to throw at you, so just keep asking questions. You don't have to memorize all these isms and millennials. Just, just what you need to understand is, is what we believe. That's the most important passage. You know, Jay, uh, this is so important in my mind because we have some friends that go to a church in Huntsville, a Believer's Fellowship of Huntsville, and they they just had a big blow up in their church because they had an elder and they had somebody else who was teaching preterism. We basically did a couple of weeks in, in a Sunday school where they would just went through all the church doctrine and, t and told them, taught how all the church doctrine was wrong. So they had to have an elder meeting and expel the elder. And, and, and so this stuff's around. 
you know, and, and these are attacks, I believe, on the church and, and, and on the Word. But it, it's there, and it's real, and we need to understand it, so I appreciate you doing this. You know, I had an interesting discussion with another believer about the Thousand Rain, because they were saying, you know, the word millennium is really, I mean, I don't know if it's in the Bible or not, but the Thousand Rain, those words are in the Bible. The discussion I had with that believer, he was a um, millennialist, was I said to him, how do you explain Revelation 20 when Satan was released after the completion of the thousand reigns, a thousand years? And we had this discussion back and forth, and it became an argument for him. <laughs> and, and to me, I said, well, okay, I'm trying to understand your view. How, do you, how does Revelation 20 fit in your view? Because literally, a thousand years is mentioned in the Bible several times. And if you don't believe in the thousand years, then you don't believe the tribulation of how many days that Daniel predicted. You don't believe the three days after the rent. I mean, those are literal, literal time periods. If you don't believe in that time period, then you don't believe in other time periods that are mentioned in the Bible. I mean, I didn't understand the millennialism concept either, but when I pointed out Revelation 20 to him in the time frame, he said to me, well, that's in the future. And I think that was a weak answer. But of course, me, stubborn as I am, I'm poking and poking and poking. We have a young man that's uh, part, kind of part of our family. My son-in-law's brother, who became an Orthodox priest, and he's now Amin, um, that word. Um, and he, he learned Greek. And so whenever I ask him these questions, he just gently smiles and says, but if you only understood Greek, you'd see the beauty in it. And I, he would never answer the questions. And the only thing that I can come up with is that it says in the Bible that knowledge puffs up. So when you have these great scholars and you now understand, then the knowledge puffs up. And it just, it's just sad. And you had a perfectly good argument. Problem yeah, is, yeah. I mean, he didn't fully acknowledge this, or else I didn't understand it. They don't interpret that literally. Right. When you get to the thousand year revelation, so they can make it fun. Yeah, it's very difficult to argue with people who have based what they believe on who said it and who who is the scholar. Also, they we haven't really. You don't really have good understanding. And, uh, and I think once they start yelling and shouting and arguing, Leah, that just proves that they don't have an answer because they want to distract from the fact that they don't have an answer. But she put a stone in his shoe, so that's good. <laughs> I read uh, this week, and uh, somebody said, and I don't know who said it, it, it impressed me that um, how important the Word of God is. <clears throat> and if we're talking about the Word of God and emphasis on the Word of God, it said when you, if you just look at Scripture and you read, you read a, a, a verse, God just spoke to you. It's His words. And I take that to mean literally. 
It's literal. He spoke to me when I read it. And if you just look at scripture and understand it's, it's the way God communicated with humankind because that's how he created us to communicate with words and you know, all of our languages in the world are related somehow or another they all go back to each other mostly and, and there's rules of grammar and, and, and interpretation understanding too you, you throw that out you don't have communication you have speculation there was a good question just spoke these people that are amillennialists, but they trust in Jesus, they just don't know whatever, they are going to go up in the rapture, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah. Their, their view of millennialism will change very, very rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Or else they'll have a lot of questions that they need to get answered. I think they'll have a, an immediate understanding. I think it's fair to say we'll all have a lot of questions. I think we'll understand the deception, which is most of the stuff, even this discussion today, if you look at it from a, from a devil's point of view of deception, if it takes you away from Christ, he wins. All the rest of it really doesn't matter. It's just like the simple act of faith. If you believe in Christ, you're going to be saved, whether it's free post or whatever you want to believe. You're going to get the answer in the end. The greatest tool the devil's had from the Garden of Eden is deception. And all you can do is walk by faith, and you can see it everywhere. Very true. Thank you. I hope it hasn't been too academic. I like to have application. Just didn't have time to get an application, but we'll talk more about that.